Hi folks, Emergency Trauma Mama here and welcome to another fun podcast and welcome to the new year. It's 2020, about halfway through now. So hopefully the year is going well for you. And let me go ahead and just get the disclaimer out of the way. So this podcast, uh, Emergency Trauma Mama podcast, does not constitute any medical or professional advice. It does not reflect the opinions of any particular company, any parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, advertising agencies, and of course, it does not create any type of nurse-to-patient relationship or any other professional relationship. It is not meant to constitute evidence-based practice, nor is it meant to be used for standardized operating procedures in any way, shape, or form. It is sheerly used for information and for learning, for education. So there's that. Um, So what I did on my IG, so if you follow me on Instagram, I posted a story the other day and I wanted to know um, some feedback on what you'd like to see for the podcast. And so what I got was the basics. Some people just said the basics. So I DM'd a few folks and I said, now tell me what you mean by the basics because That can mean anything to anybody. That can mean ABGs, EKG, chest x-rays, talking about sodium potassium pump. I didn't know. So I investigated a little further and got some answers. And so some of the feedback that I got was pertaining more or less to shock um, because that is, we do see a lot of patients, of course, in the trauma arena, we see hypovolemic shock. Not to say you can't see other types of shock, such as cardiogenic shock, obstructive shock, distributive shock. And remember, distributive shock has three other branches that branch off um, under that umbrella. So depending on what you had in nursing school, um, whether your professor was an ICU nurse or um, whatever type of professor you had, you may or may not have covered a lot of information on shock. So we will delve into that. And so I think understanding shock more at the pathophysiological level is really where we should start. And so, of course, if you've taken TNCC or ENPC, you've heard a lot of this before. Um, But back to the shock issue in and of itself, it doesn't just pertain to ED trauma nursing. I feel like every nurse can listen to this podcast and hopefully learn something because really you should be able to recognize a patient in shock, whether you're working tele or ICU or med surge. I mean, your patient can tank anywhere, let's face it. So knowing and understanding on a pathophysiological standpoint from that point of view, what's going on with the patient, I think that's important because as a nurse, you're going to catch that patient faster um, even when they just start to tank versus when they've already become the Titanic and they're sinking fast um, into the point of no return, meaning the blood loss is into a different class. Remember, there's different classes, four different classes of blood loss, um, some of which you won't get the patient back, right? So if they've lost 1,500 to 2,000 mLs, your likelihood of getting that patient back or resuscitating them successfully Your odds go down, right? Um, Class 1 and Class 2, of course, those classes of shock are much easier to resuscitate the patient from. So if you can catch the patient in the early stages of shock, 
the better off you are. So what happens to a patient? Um, we'll just start with hypovolemic because it is the most common that we see. Um, if you have a gunshot wound or stab wound and they're bleeding to death, obviously we have a hypovolemic state um, in our patient. So what happens to the sympathetic nervous system when a patient is shot? Say they're shot twice, once to the right anterior chest wall, once to the flank. And what happens at that moment? Okay, so what happens to the compensatory mechanisms in the body? Well, it depends, right? We have several different responses in the body. We have the vascular response, the cerebral response, and of course the renal response. Now, we know that the renal response is very delayed, so we'll start with the vascular response. So, gunshot wound, chest, flank, bleeding excessively, losing, we'll say, almost a liter at the scene, right? So, in that time frame, just from the moment that the bullet passes through to the time that the medics arrive, they're already having a response to the trauma, right? So, you're having a vascular response. So remember, you have the barrel receptors in the carotid, uh, carotid bodies in the aortic arch, right? So those two areas uh, will sense, hmm, you know what? I'm not really getting enough blood flow here. I, there's something wrong with the volume. You, you, you have those carotid bodies in the aortic arch, and they sense something's going on. I'm not quite having the same amount of blood flow. Um, especially if your systolic is less than 80, of course, that's going to really change things, right? So they sense a change in MAP, if you will. So you have the epinephrine and norepinephrine that's secreted from adrenal cortex, little caps that sit on top of the kidneys. So you have the epinephrine that's released, right? So that increases the blood to what? The main parts of the body, right? The brain, the heart, the lungs, the main organs, you kind of start shunting, right, so to speak. You're shunting blood, which is why our shock patients, when they come in and you touch their periphery, you touch their toes or their sometimes their fingers, they are so cold to touch, right? And there's a reason why. Now we know. Um, because the vasculature knows what to do, and it shunts away from the non-essential parts of your body, which... Who cares if your fingers are getting blood, right? Or your toes. It's, it's all about the heart and the lungs and the brain and the kidneys if you have enough blood left over. But lest I digress. So you've got your catecholamine response to epi and norepinephrine. You've got the vasoconstriction, so the patient's clamping down. Um, they're cool to touch. And again, so what is your heart going to do? Well, it's going to increase the heart rate, right? So then you get the tachycardia you get the decrease in the blood pressure, which of course is a late, late sign. But what will you see first? Well, you'll see pale, cool, diaphoretic skins. I tell every paramedic intern and every nurse that I ever teach, I'm like, look at your skins, look at your skins, feel your skins. God gave you five senses, use them all. So if you touch your patient and they're cool to touch and you see they're super diaphoretic, um, Chances are they're getting into trouble, right? They're already in trouble. Um, so you have the vasoconstriction. And all this is an intent to increase the circulating blood volume that the patient has. Um, because the body senses, hey, I'm losing, you know, vascular 
I'm losing my blood from somewhere. It doesn't always, it doesn't know where, but you know, your body knows enough to send a message for epinephrine and norepinephrine to be released to compensate for this loss of blood. So that's what we have with the vascular response. And so we tend to see, of course, what won't you see in elderly geriatric patients or patients who have beta blockade or some other cardiac issue, you're not going to see an tachycardia. So don't rely on vital signs alone. Always use your touch, your feel, you know, even um, a difference in the central and peripheral pulses. We teach that a lot more, especially with kids. Kids, kids will shunt, shunt, shunt all day long, look good, look fine. And then, of course, then they tank because um, kids are just master Houdinis at shock. Um, they look good for a longer period of time um, because they can compensate. However, when you think about their volume, they have less volume, right? So if a kid's bleeding out, you've got a lot less time to track that um, because they're going to code a lot faster because they're going to run out of volume. So therein lies the checking the central and peripheral pulses if they're super tachycardic and then you feel their uh, peripheral pulse and it's like kind of weak and thready and not really, and, and you feel their skins and their cap refills delayed and they're cool to touch, you can pretty much go down that guesstimation based on the trauma that they are in a state of shock and their sympathetic nervous system is doing its best. You know, we have the fight or flight. It's doing its best to kick in. So then we have, um, of course, our cerebral response. So the ba- the brain and the heart, of course, they try to auto-regulate. Um, there's not any active real vasoconstriction that occurs in that area. However, if the patient's blood pressure does go below 50, um, the CNS is going to further trigger the SNS to try to continue that vasoconstriction flow. So you thought your patient was clamped down with a blood pressure of 80, Try taking care of a patient whose blood pressure is now tanked to 50. So you'll see that's the cerebral response. And of course, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, the renal response, which is very delayed. Um, again, because our, our renal response is going to have a response if they're not getting enough blood flow. That's what you have to think about with these shock patients. So a patient who's shot four or five times or a patient that's stabbed, with a super long crocodile dundee serrated knife, um, maybe to the chest or um, a couple times in the abdomen, so they nick their liver or they get their spleen or mesenteric artery in there, and they're just bleeding, bleeding, bleeding. Perhaps the renal response might not be something that you'll see because the SNS is going to do the best. They're going to do damage control. Your sympathetic nervous system is going to do its best and you'll be very lucky to get blood flow to the the kidneys to get that renal response. However, we do know that we have the RAS system, right? Renin, angiotensin, aldosterone, um, which preserves, retains sodium, excretes potassium um, in an attempt to raise the blood pressure, right? So retaining the sodium, of course, is going to hopefully raise the blood pressure. Just think about salt and why we tell people with high blood pressure that they should have low sodium stuff. So it's kind of the opposite of that if you think of what you learned in nursing school because people are like, I don't really understand the RAS system. Well, you have renin that's converted to angiotensin 1, to angiotensin 2 in the lungs, and then aldosterone, which retains 
sodium and excretes potassium. And then, of course, all of that is an attempt to raise the blood pressure, right? So what does your patient say? When you hear them say in CT, I'm thirsty. <laughs> hmm, chances are that they've got some side effect of the renal response, right? And what should you be doing as a nurse if you've already ruled out they've got a negative fast, they're stable, um, or ruled stable at the time, and you're in CT with this patient, and they're like, I'm thirsty. Well, guess what? Somebody missed something on the fast, so you either need to you know, get the patient out, or I would just quickly redo an, a quick assessment and make sure um, you know, that their belly is not pushing out from, you know, because they're bleeding from somewhere. When they say they're thirsty, a patient says that they're thirsty, listen, because that means that they're going into shock. Um, so another little key there, which a lot of times people are like, I never heard that before. Um, but I heard it from a trauma clean spec um, very early on in my career, and I never forgot it. So, And then when it happened, um, actually on a patient, with a patient in CT, I thought, oh no, I know exactly where we're going with this. So again, um, listen when they say that. So um, hypovolemic uh, shock is pretty much the most common one that we do see. And of course it makes sense, right? It makes perfect sense because hypovolemic um, is less volume. They don't have enough circulating blood in their bloodstream. So as a result of that, because your RBCs carry oxygen, I also have decreased oxygen um, at the cellular level, right? So they're hypoxic as well. Um, so always remember the trauma triad of death, HAC, hypovolemia, metabolic acidosis, and coagulopathy are things that we want to prevent. Um, but you're going to see that primarily with your hypovolemic shocky patients in the trauma room. And remember too, um, you'll see this more on the TCRN or the Trauma Certified Registered Nurse if you're sitting for um, BCEN or Board Certification Emergency Nurse Exam, Certification Exam. You may see it on a CEN as well, CEN exam. Um, there are four stages of shock. And so there's class one, class two, class three, class four. You did learn them in TNCC. I guarantee you did it for the exam. Um, but just knowing, you know, if you have a humerus fracture, femur fracture, your long bone fractures, you're already into a certain class of shock. And that's just from that long bone fracture, okay? That's not from their hemonumo or any other injuries that they may have, like a liver laceration or a splenic laceration. Or like I said, you know, you can have a mammary artery tear, mesenteric artery tear. So there's a lot of bleeding that can go on. But just think, lung bone fracture can put them automatically into, you know, like a class two um, type of blood loss situation. So class one is 500 to 750. Class two is 750 to 1500. Class three is 1500 to 2000. Now think about a regular normal human being that is like really getting into that area like I had mentioned initially in the shot in the beginning of the, the podcast excuse me that you're getting past the point of almost no return right so your patient's blood pressure is 50 and you're doing DCR damage control resuscitation um, in the trauma resuscitation bay you're doing MTP or massive transfusion protocol you're dumping 
FFP and platelets and whole blood if you have it or blood products into this patient as fast as you can. So class three and class four, class four of course is anything greater than 2000. So we do get to that point where you think about your major organs and they can no longer be adequately perfused, right? At that point, so therefore your patient would have a blood pressure lower than 50 um, and they would kind of continue to circle the drain there a little bit. So class three, class four, no bueno, but think of your long bone fractures can automatically put you into like a 750 to 1500 ml blood loss. And that's just one injury, particularly, I almost forgot to mention, your pelvic fractures. Think about your pelvic fractures and how much they can dump into their pelvis. Those always make me nervous, real, real nervous. Um, okay, so just moving on here, um, just some real quick other types of shock. Remember that cardiogenic um, <clears throat> is ineffective perfusion, of course, because their heart's not working so well. Their cardiac contractility is kind of no bueno. So cardiac, cardiogenic shock, um, massive MI, um, BCI or blunt cardiac injury, MVP, any aortic stuff, just regular straight up cardiac failure. Um, obstructive can, it is what it says it is because people are like, well, I don't really understand the difference, but think about obstructive. What does that mean? Well, something's obstructing the great veins, um, the aorta, aorta, pulmonary arteries, or subclavian veins. Something's pushing or obstructing or compressing against that therefore obstructing I just think of obstructive and I think it is what it says it is so there's some obstruction to circulating volume because of a massive PE or some other type of injury um, and distributive and remember it's poor distribution of blood flow or blood volume which again it is what it says it is right distributive is the blood flow is not being distributed very well um, but what's causing that? So remember NAS, that's how I remember it. So the mnemonic NAS, so neurogenic anaphylaxis and sepsis. So all of those fall under distributive. So HCOD or HCOD, hypovolemic, cardiogenic, obstructive, distributive. And then under distributive, you have the NAS, neurogenic, anaphylactic, and sepsis. And of course, Neurogenic would be in trauma, um, your SCI. So you've got your spinal cord injured patient. We'll say gunshot wound, uh, intersects T11, T12, transects right through that cord and has no feeling um, below the level of transection. So that patient um, may have priapism, um, but they'll be bradycardic and you'll be seeing their brow get real full of sweat. They'll get real diaphoretic. So neurogenic shock looks like that. Um, anaphylaxis, I typically just think of massive peripheral dilatation out, outwards, um, due to some kind of, we'll use bee venom as an example. Bee venom, uh, peanuts, a lot of peanut allergies these days in kids, peanut butter, Nuts, walnuts, all kinds of nuts. Uh, took care of a patient who was just a regular old college student eating in the dorm. And lo and behold, somebody accidentally 
touched their food with a fork uh, that they had used something with peanut butter and they didn't know it because it was in the back. It was the food preparation person. But how would they know? Because they do that stuff in like, you know, like a, a, a line of people behind the counter. Like the students can't see that. And so unfortunately, the student had such a severe allergy to peanuts. That's what sent her into anaphylactic shock. So anaphylaxis, um, usually introduction of something. I just always think, you know, bee venom because it's the one that makes the most sense because we always think EpiPen, right? So what's going to counteract shock? Uh, epinephrine, right? Because that's, again, going back to your sympathetic nervous system with your fight or flight. And it causes that peripheral vasoconstriction, right? With your catecholamines. And then, of course, we have regular sepsis, which I'm sure you have dealt with a lot of septic patients in the past. Um, something gets in their bloodstream. Um, perhaps it's a, a peds hematology oncology patient. Um, and it doesn't take much for those little guys or little gals to get some kind of infection, right? Because someone can just cough on them the wrong way and they don't happen to have a mask on and them being immunosuppressed, of course, they cannot fight. So they get septic very easily. So something, some microorganism is causing poor distribution of the blood flow or blood volume, right? So you have a peripheral um, vasodilatation. The initial assault, of course, is the immune response. Um, and then again, that massive systemic uh, peripheral vasodilatation. So cardiogenic, I think bad pump or pump failure. Um, hypovolemic, it is what it says it is. And of course, obstructive, something is obstructing it. So uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up here. We'll just use a couple quick little examples. So you have a 34-year-old male who's arriving, status post MVC. He's an unrestrained driver in a high-speed rollover crash. So always think immediately, okay, what's the mechanism of injury? Basically like a washing machine, um, throwing your clothes in and just think of the dryer and clothes tumbling around in there. That's what happened to this poor individual with a lot of speed and a lot of velocity, right? A lot of energy in the vehicle and all of that has to go somewhere. And unfortunately, this patient was not buckled in. So a lot of energy as the vehicle was going end over end uh, went into this patient's body. So he was kind of tossed around. Um, so right off the top of your head, you kind of think major SCI, right? Um, as you're assessing his ABCs, he screams, I can't move my legs. Um, he's bradycardic and his BP is 92 over 56. So of course, right off the bat, you think distributive, right? Because the blood flow is is poorly being, it's being distributed very poorly, um, right? Because his blood pressure is not so good. And you're like, why is he so bradycardic? We'll say he's 45. So no meds, no allergies, no history, beta blockers, nothing. So right off the bat, you think distributive, right? So there's a problem with distribution. And then you think, okay, what are my choices? I've got neurogenic, anaphylaxis, or sepsis. Well, this one's pretty easy because he definitely falls under the neurogenic part of distributive shock. So we'll say distributive shock, um, neurogenic in nature. Okay, so the next one, 
you have a three-year-old female um, presenting to the triage area with mom. Mom says that her child has been vomiting, has had diarrhea. Okay, so child presents to triage, um, temps 98.2, so afebrile, but tacky 135, BP is 72 over 40. And you notice that her eyes are kind of sunken in, and then when you go to kind of touch her, she's not really um, fussing around too much. And even when she gets kind of upset, she's not really making tears anymore either. And so you ask mom, right, um, has she had the same number of diapers? Is she making tears? And all of that's no, 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 no. Um, so big warning signs, of course, the BP is the tipper. <laughs> Um, so this patient straight up just hypovolemic, right? Um, all right, let's see. We'll give you a couple more here and then we'll wrap it up because we're almost out of time. Um, you have a 78-year-old male patient that's coming in via AMBO. He's complaining of, quote, quotations, uh, bouts of chest pain, which began sometime Friday, so this is Sunday-ish. Okay, he started Friday. Um, he didn't want to bother his family, so he took some extra nitroglycerin with his dinner on Friday, and he hoped that the chest pain would just go away. Um, he called 911 this morning because he began to feel weak, dizzy, and now his current vitals are as follows. Heart rate 78, normal sinus rhythm with multifocal PVCs. BP is 82 over 54. Respers 22 and standing 93% on 4 liters per nasal cannula. So, what do you think going on with this guy? So, does he have a pump problem? Yes, uh, uh, yes, sir, I'd say so, right? Probably uh, had a huge MI sometime started probably on Friday when he had his initial bout of chest pain. And, of course, and this happens a lot, too. I'm sure you see this in your practice. Um, unfortunately, you know, geriatric or elderly patients, sometimes they live alone um, if they're widowed or, you know, maybe their spouse isn't well. The last thing that they're going to do is pick up the phone and call 911 because maybe they're the primary caregiver for somebody else. So, again, um, so he probably started infarcting on Friday and this went on um, up until Sunday morning when he came in at 0500 because, you know, that's the time that your MIs come in, your STEMIs and your PEs. So he's infarcted. And of course, the multifocal PVCs are telling you that the ventricles are irritable. And of course, he's hypotensive, 82 or 54. He's a little tachypnic, um, heart rate 78. But again, I didn't give you a list of meds. But um, you get the gist of that straight up cardiogenic shock. You know, I'm sure his trope would come back sky high. And, uh, Unfortunately, sometimes, you know, that, that part of the heart that's been infarcting, you know, they'll go in and cath them, but, you know, depending on his risk factors and whatnot, but yeah, he's been infarcting a long time. So depending on what coronary artery is, if it's LED or RCA, that part of the heart's already going to be dead, unfortunately, because it's been infarcting for so long. So, um, let's see one more and then we'll wrap it up. So you have a 54-year-old male status post MBC. He's the unrestrained driver in a low-speed crash. Okay, no seatbelt, low speed. Medic state, there was significant damage to the back right quarter panel of his car. 
Um, he's complaining of severe chest pain. And he was riding one of those old, you know, those old cutlasses. Chevy Cutlass, like 19, I don't know, 78-ish, 82. No, um, no airbags. No airbags. So it's sounding as if his chest wall made contact with the steering wheel. This is what I'm getting. Blunt cardiac injury of some sort. And he is complaining of severe chest pain. So you're proceeding with your primary and secondary. Upon inspection and palpation of the chest wall, you know he's got ecchymosis and abrasions. And vital signs are as follows. Heart rate's 109. BP, 88 over 42. Respirators, 29. Setting 89 on room air. You also note muffled heart tones, JVD, and hypotension, which are indicative of Beck's triad. That's another CEN question. So, or TCRN, right? Because if you're studying for that, they're going to ask you about BCI or blunt cardiac injury. So, muffled heart tones, JVD, and hypotension are the hallmark signs uh, for Beck's triad. Uh, which is indicative of cardiac tamponade, right? So you would say, well, that must be obstructive shock, right? Because there's no, there's inadequate circulating volume resulting as a compression or obstruction of the heart itself. Okay. Um, all right. So sounds like we've done some pretty good work here from a pathophysiological standpoint. And uh, hopefully you understand shock a little bit better. And uh, hit me up on IG. Again, um, I'm on there, Emergency Trauma Mama, um, for any future ideas for podcasts. And thank you so much. And I hope that you all have a great day.